on digital radio 94.9 fm and on bbc sounds this is london this is bbc radio london robert elms London, I'm Robert Elms. We're also going to be talking about the movies, and indeed the lost movies, of Ray Harryhausen. You know those Harryhausen films. But what about all the films he didn't make? There's a big new book called Harryhausen, The Lost Movies by John Walsh. sitting here a few moments ago saying I'd love to talk to someone who kind of knows this part of the world really well North Greenwich that is, maybe who kind of knew it before we built all of this new modern stuff and in walks the gentleman now sitting opposite me he's John Walsh, he's here because of this extremely handsome book called Harry House and the Lost Movies and we're going to be talking about that in a moment but it so turns out he's a Greenwich boy and has known this part of the world throughout his entire life so John welcome to the show it's great to be here, Robert. Thank you. So let's begin with the O2 and then this whole new development of Greenwich. And this. What was there before? Was it a gasworks? Yes, it was. So it was an abandoned gasworks that hadn't been used for many years. And it was abandoned. It was, it was empty in the late 80s. Right. So when Sylvester McCoy, the, the Doctor Who from the late 80s, was filming Silver Nemesis down what there. What was Silver Nemesis? Uh, that was the return of the Cybermen. Right. So it was the last time the Cybermen appeared. So this in... is a Doctor Who episode? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. so a, a full sort of four-parter. Right. And uh, the, the Cybermen returned for the last time under classic Doctor Who reign. And uh, the gasworks in Greenwich were, were the backdrop to it. And I tried to get down and, and, and get close, but at the time there wasn't a, a bus route down to there as there is now. And so it was a, a former abandoned gasworks. And, and that's a big old site as well, isn't it? It is, yes. I mean, it, it's larger than the sites that the actual dome is on. So, yes, in terms of it being a new park, I think that's fabulous. So do you remember the dome being built and all of that? I do, yeah, because the, the tube came first. And then when the tube arrived, North Greenwich Tube, there was a, a bus route from Charlton, where I used to live. So you could get the M1 and M2 buses, which were M for Millennium. Right. And, and they really? were Yeah, yeah, <laughs> M for And they were London Transport red buses, single yeah. decker. And they went from Charlton Station all the way down to North Greenwich. And uh, often I'd travel outside the rush hour when I could. You'd be the only person on the bus. So a little bit VIP-like <laughs> going down on the bus. And I was saying now that it has a kind of a, a futuristic feel, and I rather likened it to Blade Runner. But you actually put me right. It's not quite Blade Runner. No, because Blade Runner is a sort of dystopian future using sort of old architecture that's been refitted. And the Millennium Dome is very new. So in a sense, it's, it's almost earlier than Blade Runner. It's more like Logan's Run from 1975. <laughs> Um, because that starts with a wonderful dome, a very clean dome, where everyone who reaches the age of 30 effectively, effectively becomes a, a, annihilated on the carousel. Right. So Michael York has to escape because he's reaching 30 and so on and takes really beautiful Jenny Agatha with him. Um, if, so if you watch Blade Runner again and watch Logan's Run again, you'll kind of see that Millennium Dome probably tilts slightly towards... Logan's run. And, and the architecture all around it now that's emerged, in, you know, in, in the last few years. I mean, because I remember going to the Dome literally in the millennium and there was nothing else there. It was sort of sat on its own. 
Whereas now it is surrounded by these kind of blocks and tower blocks and all of that sort of stuff. And it certainly do it doesn't feel like you're in London. It feels you're like you're in some other city entirely. I mean, it's kind of... Well, it's like a Silicon Valley meets Starfleet Academy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. With all the colours and, and the shapes. very brightly coloured. Yes. Which is a very un-London... I always think of London as a grey city. And I rather like that battleship grey of, of classic London architecture. But this is a very colourful kind of future. I suppose they wanted to try and create a new vibe and a new town and district so that people would say that, you know, it looks very different. And it certainly does that. It certainly does. Right then, let's turn now to the reason that you're really here, which is this very handsome, very large, very colourful book called Harry and The Lost Movies. Now, I kind of I'm not a science fiction fan, especially. I don't mind some science fiction films, but it's not my genre. And I sort of thought, do I know who Ray Harryhausen is? And then I thought, mm, isn't that the bloke Jason and the Argonauts? Is that him? And that's about the level of my knowledge, really. Well, you know, that's fine, Robert, because most people, you know, will know the films, but not necessarily know the man behind them. And so, you know, Clash of the Titans with the Golden Owl, Jason the Argonauts, as you rightly said, One Million Years BC with Raquel oh, Welsh, that Fur well? Bikini, that was Ray Harryhausen. Right. So it's, it's one of those moments where if I listed out all 16 of his films, you will have seen certainly all of them and you'd remember most of them and you'd have a favourite because maybe there was a Bond girl who appeared or there was a classic monster which haunted your dreams. So there will always be those kind of touchstone moments. But to think of him as a filmmaker of the past, which is, you know, legitimate, it's fine. When, when, was, he, when was he alive? What, when was he working? Let's put his parameters in. So if you like, the uh, late 1940s until the early 1980s. Um, but when he died there in 2013, George Lucas said there would likely have been no Star Wars without Ray Harryhausen. Wow. So his influence on fantasy cinema, on science fiction, on visual special effects was so important. Where was he from? Uh, he was from California. So he, he grew up in the uh, in the Sunshine State, so he very much enjoyed that. But he came to the UK in the late 1950s, set up shop here in London. Why? What? Given well, that he's making movies and you're in California, that seems like a slightly odd journey to make. Well, it was it was a various reasons. It was partly because the locations that he filmed in, like Malta and Spain, for the Sinbad films, were very much unspoiled. Did he do Sinbad? Yep, Sinbad oh, and the Eye of the Tiger, oh. the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Yeah, I the, love that one. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Oh, that's a cracker. You, you see, so you, you do know them, Robert. Um, and so he came here for that reason, to be near the locations, but also for a rather odd technical reason. It was cheaper to shoot the films using what's called the yellow sodium backing process, a bit like green screen, <laughs> here in the UK than it would have been in the US. Right. So they couldn't have done the same sort of trick photography and had the same um, costings for those projects. And was special effects always his metier? Was that what he became famous for? I think so, sort of creature creation. If, if you were producing a film, Robert, in that era, if you weren't going to Ray Harryhausen to have a stop-motion creature, you were putting a man in a rubber suit. So these were your options. I quite like a man in a rubber suit, but <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> but if you think about, you know, like Godzilla and, and those sort of creature features, which are great films too, yeah. um, but they're very much a sort of a, a more primitive way of, of creating special effects. And, you know, audiences were becoming more and more sophisticated. You know, black and white gave way to colour, colour gave way to widescreen and cinemascope, and even 3D. So what were his great innovations? Well, um, interacting uh, live action with computer animation was... Was he using computers back then? Um, well, uh, with uh, rather with... I mean, a, it would be a fairly kind of basic form of computer. Well, um, yeah, I mean, to correct myself there, not computer animation, and stop motion animation yeah. combined with live action, much like they do today with computers. Um, but 
to think of him as just a special effects person is probably to remove one of his greatest sort of artistic claims to fame, which is he's the only filmmaker up until that point and since then who was also the producer on his own projects so rather so he raised the money he put it all together he chose the cast that's right the story so normally if you were making a film about dinosaurs or terminator you'd get in the best special effects people that wasn't the point at which ray harryhausen joined a project he was the inceptor of the projects he created them himself so he's like top of the pyramid if you will were they bit were they very successful films did they make money they did yes um clash of the titans made more money in europe than uh, raiders of the lost ark which opened in the same year so, you know, it was phenomenal box office returns. But the sting in the tail is if you're the head of the studio, Robert, you'd have to wait nearly three years for the project to come to you. So if you greenlit a new Sinbad from Ray Harryhausen today, yep. it could be 2023, 20, before it's arriving. So, you know, it's a long-term commitment from a studio head. Was that because the process was a, was a very laborious one or what? It was, yeah. I mean, it took, um, it took four months just to create the last 10-minute sequence of the skeletons wow. in Jason the Argonauts because he worked on his own. Um, you're, you're moving these creatures frame at a time. I think, so he's literally yeah. sitting there with these what, models or yeah. whatever they are? so with the models in front of him and behind the live action that may have been shot six months previously on an island in Crete yeah. of the actors. So you move the actors on one frame then you move the models one frame and then you film the whole thing for one frame. And so it's really laborious. So trying to remember what went before and after, and he didn't use any kind of video assist or any computers to help him remember. It was, you know, an amazing feat of, of plate spinning. Where did he live? Did he live in, in central London? He lived in Holland Park, in oh, Ilchester Place. Right. So three, very nice place to live. Very nice, very swanky house. Yes. And uh, three doors away from Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, who's right. still there, and uh, six doors away from Michael Winner. So he had quite a sort of a celebrity enclave of, uh, of neighbours, which was quite fabulous. And was he a, I mean, would he have had friends in the British film industry? Was he, was he a clubbable man? Was he? I think so. I mean, he was, he was a great employer. So long before George Lucas and Steven Spielberg came in the 70s to use British technicians on their films, yeah. Ray and Charles Schneer, his producing partner, were doing it all that time. And, and, you know, for every Jason the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, there were the unmade films, his unmade War well, of the Worlds. This is what we have here. This book is called Harryhausen, The Lost Movies. So what are these? Are these films that never got made or projects that... What, what happened? So we, there were so many, if you like, creative outlets for things that people haven't seen. We decided to umbrella us under one kind of headline, The Lost Movies. They include films he developed that he never made. Um, films he turned down right. might be surprised to know what he turned down and and scenes cut from his own classic famous films so they're all in there for the very first time and in, in what form the drawings the... we have drawings we have paintings we have test footage um, really? yeah so we have screenshots of the test footage in there we have in some cases audio recordings um you know, most filmmakers like Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps, and the great Stanley Kubrick, for unmade projects, there may be a few sketches. Mostly it'll be paperwork. Yeah. It'll be typed out sheets and, and treatments and scripts. This is a visual feast, isn't it? I mean, it I can is, see yeah. now as you're looking through the book, it's just like one image after another. And they look slightly familiar because you can kind of recognise this is the sort of film you'd recognise Ray So Harry did, did he thought. storyboard them all in that way? He, that he'd storyboard he them and then he'd do concept art. So some of the art you're looking at there would be to show to the studio and say, look, this is how it's going to be. And in some cases, he'd do sculptures in bronze. Wow. And he'd say, look, bring in the bronze sculpture, put it on the desk and say this is how Medusa is going to look. I love Break Out the Loch Ness Monster. 
<laughs> well, the titles used to sell these films. You can imagine they're competing in the local newspapers and um, with the, the billings and listings would be very small. So you'd need that punchy title. Um, where was all this stuff? Is there an archive of it? I mean, there is. Yeah. Hollywood is, is notorious for throwing things away. Yeah. Um, because financially, there's no reason to store things and hold on to things. So with 50,000 items in the collection makes it the largest of its kind outside of the Walt Disney Company. Wow. So Ray kept most things in his house at Ilchester Place and he had other properties around the world. He had a place in Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles uh, and he had a place in Malibu and a place in Spain. Um, but when he left us in 2013, for the first time, we brought it all together under one roof and I'm a trustee of his charity along with his daughter, Vanessa. And Where did your interest come from? Well, I was an eighteen-year-old. Well, yeah, I was an eighteen-year-old film student at the London Film School. There's a picture of me at the front of the book, looking very interesting and eighteen, and wearing black shirts. And I, I got his number out of the telephone directory. He was the only R. Harryhausen listed. <laughs> so I had to ask my parents, "Can I use the phone?" My mum said, "If it's after six, yes." <laughs> you remember those days? Yes, of course. And uh, and I rang him up and I said, so "I'm a student at the London Film School. I'd like to come and make a film about your life and work." And so we sort of clicked. I made the film. It catapulted me into television. I ended up working quite young age, uh, directing in TV. And uh, we stayed in touch. And he asked me to become a trustee then of his foundation uh, shortly before he died. Um, I set about recording commentaries for all of his films because amazingly, he didn't record commentaries for most of his motion pictures. What do you mean by that? Um, so, you know, director's commentaries... Right. Um, he, a lot of people will will know of directors' commentaries. They might not necessarily listen to them on the DVD extras. Right. So Martin Scorsese chatting about Goodfellas okay, and so yeah, on. Yeah. And it's a it's a real oral history, and it's vital to have those. So in the twenty five hours of recordings I did with Ray, we sat him down. He watched his old films. He talked to me. That's when most of the stories came out about the lost movies. Because when I was much younger, I used to ask him about the lost movies, and he'd cut the conversation really? dead. Oh yeah because um, he wouldn't want to talk about them because it was quite an open wound in some cases. What, because these are projects that he'd really wanted to get done and for whatever yeah. reason they hadn't happened? And or... someone beat him to it twice in one case. In what two was cases. that? Well, I mean, this is not to be disparaging of, of great people in Hollywood, but um, in the late 1940s, Ray had created test footage for War of the Worlds wow. and wanted to create his Martians on tripoded legs, much like in the book. Yeah. And he made the mistake, I believe, of mentioning it to George Powell, the famous filmmaker who then went off to make his version of all of the worlds um and <laughs> they still mates kind of i suspect you know ray had worked with george powell when he was much younger ray was very much uh, under george powell he made the same mistake again a few years later when um he announced to a group of friends and, and george powell heard about it he wanted the rights for the time machine it's a it's a fascinating book and a fascinating look into the world is he a man who's who's legend lives on are there lots of harryhausen fans and stuff oh absolutely i mean in the forward of the book we have five famous filmmakers giving us their view on ray's unmade films um john landis who did michael jackson's thriller and yep. trading places and so on guillermo del toro who won best picture for shape of the water quite recently john borman mike hodges who did flash gordon so modern filmmakers like peter jackson said he would never have made lord of the rings or even attempted it had he not grown up on the films of ray harryhausen and believe that it would be possible to create realistic and believable monsters on screen, or creatures, as Ray called them. Well, the films of Ray Harryhausen are out there, and you can watch them, but the lost movies of Ray Harryhausen are here in this fantastic book by John Walsh. John, thank you very, very much.
On digital radio. 94.9 FM. And on BBC Sounds. This is London. This is BBC Radio London. Robert Elms.